I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. It's my joy to, once again, minister the Word to you as we look at a very heart-wrenching scene pertaining to Jesus' trial, which I call a microcosm of man's mockery. Follow along as I read Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter also was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes, saying, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? It's now early in the morning, just hours before our Savior's crucifixion. And in an act of mockery and treason, Judas has betrayed the Savior. And now the religious aristocracy of Israel, bent on destroying Jesus, have amassed a great mob. They have taken Jesus and his disciples into Jerusalem for a mock trial. And what we see in this text is, frankly, the greatest act of premeditated injustice in the history of the world. Because as we look at this, every conceivable principle of jurisprudence is violated in a concerted effort to kill the innocent Son of God. Now, in order to grasp this blatant and blasphemous miscarriage of justice, we will examine four central issues. I'll give them to you very simply. We'll look at the context, the caste, the conspiracy, and the correlate. The context being the Jewish principles of jurisprudence that we need to understand to see what a mockery this trial truly was. 
We will also look at the cast of characters laid out before us, a satanic cast of characters, fiendish pawns who conspire to convict Jesus. And we will also look at the conspiracy, meaning we will examine the illegal proceedings of or proceedings, I should say, of Jesus trial. And we will also look then at the correlate or in other words, the 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 parallels of what happened in this sham trial that frankly happens every day in the hearts of men. First, the context, the Jewish principles of jurisprudence. Naturally, our God, being a holy God, is a God of perfect justice. And therefore, he has laid out in his word the principles of justice, especially when it comes to the elements of jurisprudence. And it's fascinating as we look at the trial of Jesus that every single aspect of God's principles were violated. Now, as we examine the scripture and we look at God's established principles of jurisprudence, we see it laid out in the Pentateuch. And obviously, we're not going to take time to go through all of the passages. Let me give you but a sample of a few. In Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, we read, You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. In verses 7 and 8, he says, Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, we read, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And in Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 18, we read, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God has given you. And in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, we see how God in his infinite wisdom establishes a principle to guard against false witnesses, which is basically going to be one that says that if you lie about someone and you're caught in that lie, you will suffer the same punishment as the accused. And here's what it reads in Deuteronomy 19:16. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men and who the man and who have the, the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. And the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, Then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. 
Moreover, in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 6, we read, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. In other words, if you're a witness then one of the things that you would be responsible for in a case of capital punishment is you would be the one required to cast the first stone, which would be a way of you accepting responsibility for your testimony. By the way, this is what Jesus had in mind in John chapter 8 and verse 7. Remember when he referred to the accusers of, uh, of the woman taken in adultery, And he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. The Jews even had their version of a Supreme Court, if you will. When a court was unable to arrive at a verdict, they were commanded, according to Deuteronomy 17, 9, to go to the Levitical priest or judge. And then they would render the decision. Now, the Jews were scrupulous in their adherence to these legal principles. In fact, the very principles that undergird our Western civilization, our Western legal system, are based in God's provision for jurisprudence in the Old Testament. We understand, according to Scripture, that those who violated laws punishable by death were convicted and they were killed. Others guilty of lesser crimes had to make restitution. Unfortunately, in our modern legal system, we have tampered with the divine principles and replaced them with things like incarceration. They didn't have massive prisons in those days. You paid restitution or you were killed. But we don't have restitution these days. And instead, we have prisons filled with criminals who should have been executed. And many of them are released on parole with a rap sheet a mile long and they end up committing more crimes. Now, the Jewish system included a provision whereby if there was a community of 100 men who were leaders of a family, then they would organize a legal council of up to 23 members. It was always an odd number to prevent a vote that might end up in a tie. And the Greek term for this was synedrion, and we get our word Sanhedrin from it, and it literally means sitting together. In fact, the Sanhedrin is often translated court. If it was a Sanhedrin in a small community, but it's translated council, especially in the New American Standard Version, if it referred to the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, which was composed of the chief priests, uh, the elders, the scribes, and then ultimately the high priest, which would end up totaling 71. Again, an odd number in order to break a tie. Now, there were numerous other principles inherent in divine jurisprudence that the Jews adhered to. For example, a sentence of death required a three-day period of fasting before the execution. It was a period of time for the members of the council to reflect upon the decision that had been made. And it also prevented a trial from occurring during a special convocation to the Lord where there might be feasting 
which, by the way, is significant with respect to Jesus' trial. And it also provided opportunity for new evidence to come forth to surface that might perhaps exonerate the defendant. And again, all of this was violated in Jesus' trial. Scholars that have studied Jewish law, ancient Jewish law, tell us that there was a model that was often quoted among the Sanhedrin, especially in a case involving capital punishment. And here's what their motto was, quote, the Sanhedrin is to save, not destroy life. So, in other words, mercy was a factor that was very important to them. In fact, it was so important that they believed that there that if there were a unanimous guilty verdict, that that would, in fact, indict the council. That, in fact, they were not ruled by mercy and therefore the prisoner would be set free. They were so committed to protecting defendants from self-incrimination that a person could not be convicted on the basis of their own confession. Hearsay was inadmissible in the courts and witnesses were required to know precisely not only the location of the crime in question, but also the precise day and even hour it took place. Children were not allowed to be witnesses due to their immaturity, nor were slaves or people of questionable character. Moreover, women were never allowed to testify because they believed that they would be unable to throw the first stone in the act of execution. All hearings were to be public so that everyone could hear and no portion of any trial could ever be conducted at night because that's when most people were asleep. Every defendant was presumed innocent. And interestingly enough, in a local council where there would be 23 people, 11 votes were necessary for acquittal, but 13 were necessary for a conviction. And when the council voted for the verdict, they would always begin with the youngest to the oldest because they wanted to make sure that the younger ones would not be influenced by the vote of their elders. If the accused was convicted, again, two days had to elapse before sentencing and members of the council, as I said earlier, were required to fast. And then they would reconvene and each judge would be asked once again if they had changed their mind. And interestingly enough, the only way you could change your vote is from guilty to innocent, never from innocent to guilty. Again, all of these things were violated in Jesus' trial. If a defendant was condemned to die, that defendant would then be led to the place of execution in an entourage of guards, and there would be a herald in front of that person riding a horse, and that herald would exclaim publicly the name of the person, the crime, and even the witnesses who have sworn against him or her. And he would also ask repeatedly if anyone knows anything 
about this particular crime that might exonerate this person, please speak up quickly. And if someone were to speak up, there would be an immediate stay of execution. They would return to the council and they would consider the new evidence. And if not, then the criminal was encouraged to publicly confess their crime. And then they would be offered a drink laced with narcotics to deaden the pain and they would be executed. That final act was the only thing that was offered to Jesus. A drink laced with narcotics to deaden the pain. But what's tragic, yet typical of the wickedness of man, is that of all of these legal requirements, they were set aside. They were jettisoned because of a larger purpose. The purpose of selfishness and wickedness and pride and the destruction of the Son of Man. So that's the context of Jesus' trial. Let's look at the cast for a moment. The satanic characters, the fiendish pawns who conspired to convict Jesus. According to John 18:13, we read that his captors led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Annas we know historically had previously served as high priest for probably four to five years. And now that particular position had been given over to his son-in-law for reasons that we're not fully aware of. But still, we know that Annas was a very influential religious figure in Jerusalem in that day. Now, like all positions of that time, even the high priest position was given to a person by Rome. It was a political appointment, often through a favor or bribery. And to put it bluntly, the Jewish aristocracy basically controlled everything in that day. And they were in cahoots with Rome. Now, Annas was a man that would be tantamount to a mafia kingpin, because that's basically what they had going on there. He was the one, as you will recall, that controlled all of the extortionists that operated uh, in the temple, all of the money changers, all of the, the guys that would have to certify your animal and never your animal would never be good enough. You would have to buy one of theirs at a great price and on and on that went. And by the way, you will recall that Jesus shut that whole operation down two times. And so naturally, the first person they take Jesus to is the kingpin to Annas. Because he was the top political power broker among the Jews, and he absolutely hated Jesus. Take your Bible for a moment and turn to Gospel of John, chapter 18. And we read about what happened here first, actually even before he comes to Caiaphas. In John, chapter 18, beginning with verse 19. The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. 
And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Well, after Annas is through with Jesus, being exasperated with his divine genius, he sends him on to Caiaphas, the presiding high priest, the second player in this satanic cast of characters. And we come back to Matthew's gospel in verse 57. We read, and those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Now, again, this is in violation of Jewish law. Jesus is now being badgered by a second conniving official in a kangaroo court convened in the middle of the night in a private courtyard. There's nothing public about this. The scribes and the elders had known since Thursday night that Jesus was going to be betrayed and captured, and so they have anxiously assembled. No doubt they're sneering with glee, knowing, boy, we've got him finally. And in verse 58, we read a heart-wrenching, read of a heart-wrenching scene about Peter's heart is racing with fear and anger and disbelief. and His conscience is, is accusing him of fleeing and so forth in the garden. And we read here that but Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. I might pause for a moment here to reflect with you. As I think about it, there are many people who imitate Peter. They follow Christ, but only do so at a great distance. There's that fear of being ridiculed or persecuted or maybe even killed. And when you look at many people that name the name of Christ, it's hard to tell if they're really a part of his true disciples or not. For those type of people... I would say that they have what I would call a secularized faith. It's very prevalent in our culture today. It's a faith that is not so much marked by unbelief, but rather it is marked by apathy. It is marked by indifference. Let's just kind of keep our distance from Jesus and all that he claims and his word and all of that. Let's keep our faith private. After all, that's a private matter. We don't need to talk about our faith. We don't need to talk about what we believe. We don't need to integrate our faith and the truths of Scripture in every aspect of our life because after all, that's just not politically correct. And so what's important to do here is to keep our faith on the periphery of life. And so we follow Jesus at a distance. And yet all through the Word of God, we're told to draw near to Him, right? The psalmist said that nearness to God is my only good. We are to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, to follow Him. And that's not to mean, that doesn't mean to follow Him at a distance. Well, certainly Peter learned this lesson. And by the grace of God, he was radically changed as time went on. Well, as we go back to this vile list of characters, as we look at Scripture, we see that Annas and Caiaphas and their aristocratic cronies, 
would gradually grow to include the Roman procurator, procurator, difficult to pronounce, a man by the name of Pilate, who sent him to Herod Antipas, the Roman puppet king, the Tetrarch of Galilee. And then after Herod, we read that uh, his soldiers beat up on Jesus and harass and torture him. And then he sent back to Pilate, who finally, very unenthusiastically, decides to convict Jesus and trade him for Barabbas and actually have him crucified. And so literally, as we look at Scripture, we see that, that Jesus endures six sham legal proceedings all within the span of approximately 12 hours. Inconceivable. And then he's crucified. And so these were the demonic religious fiends that Satan used to torment and, and to humiliate and falsely accuse and convict and even crucify the innocent Lamb of God. Now, while the names have certainly changed, the same kinds of characters have existed all throughout redemptive history, and they continue to this very day. So we've seen the context of Jesus' trial and the satanic cast of characters. Let's look at the conspiracy itself and examine some of the illegal proceedings of Jesus' trial, beginning in verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. You see, again, folks, you've got to remember, this was their all-consuming, premeditated goal. And they had to do anything they possibly could to attain that goal. They had to get rid of Jesus. After all, he was threatening their enterprise. Not to mention, he was embarrassing them. He was humiliating them. He was exposing the very thing that they were trying to silence in their conscience Namely, their hypocrisy, their wickedness. By the way, isn't it interesting? You see this all the time with people. This is why sinful people despise biblical preaching. This is why sinful people despise biblical counseling. Because, as the Scriptures tell us, some men prefer darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So they hated Jesus. They were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans 1 would say. And yet Jesus was coming along and pulling the lid off of that. And the reality of their wickedness would just spill over into their life. So they wanted to do everything they possibly could to get rid of this thorn in their side. In fact, in Mark 14, verse 56, we read that the stories of the testimonies were inconsistent. I find that interesting, by the way. Here you have the father of lies energizing this whole ordeal. And yet he is even having a, a, an impossible time trying to find anybody or anything against Jesus especially something worthy of a capital offense. Not, not a single eyewitness could lay a charge of wrongdoing against Jesus, which, by the way, is a powerful testimony to his sinless perfection. And in verse 60, they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Isn't that interesting? 
knowing according to Jewish law that if you bore false testimony, you could be crucified, yet they're willing to do that. Oh, the blindness of sin. But later on, two came forward, the word tells us. Again, remember, the law required at least two witnesses. And they said in verse 61, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, by the way, this was a very clever spin, but it was not what Jesus said. If we read in John 2, verse 19, we read what he truly said. And here's what he truly said, quote, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, folks, you must understand that that particular enigmatic statement was not a reference to the temple in Jerusalem that was to be destroyed as the eyewitnesses now uh, had, had wrongly assumed. But rather, it was a reference to his death and his resurrection. It had nothing to do with the literal temple. But self-righteous, self-centered men don't want to be confused by the truth. Their minds were made up and this conspiracy had to go on. So again, Mark's gospel adds that even the stories of the two witnesses were fraught with inconsistencies, which should have thrown the whole thing out, according to Jewish law. But you've got to keep in mind now, the council is getting increasingly patient because guess what's coming? Dawn. What happens when dawn comes? People begin to get up. They begin to stir around. And the last thing in the world they wanted is for people to become suspicious that something illegal was going on. So they latched on to Jesus' words and they twisted them to mean what they wanted them to mean. And now they believe they had a charge against him. Verses 62 and 64, we read that the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I find it interesting here, this interplay of sitting and standing in this text. Isn't it interesting? Here you have the sinful high priest sitting in a position of power and honor. And now he rises from his seat and he stands to confront the sinless Son of God who is not sitting in the position of power as he rightfully should be, but standing before this wicked man as a condemned criminal. But then Jesus tells him, Hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. In other words, a time is coming when this scene is going to be reversed. In fact, Mark's Gospel reveals that Jesus also answered the high priest's question by saying, I am, which once again, as you know, is the covenant name of the living God, the one that was given earlier that caused the entire mob to fall back on their backs on the ground. That's important for you to understand that the answer that Jesus gave to this sanctimonious hypocrite and all of the scholars that were with him was one that was rooted in the Old Testament 
a couple of texts that they would know very well. One is found in Psalm 110, verse 1, where we read, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And also in Daniel 7, verse 13, that we read earlier, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, referring to the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So obviously Jesus was attesting to his deity, to his power and to his glory, and even to his eventual vengeance upon his enemies. And of course, this is what utterly infuriated the satanically empowered religionists. So the ruse goes on. Verse 65 and 66, the high priest tore his robes, saying he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? By the way, this was a false zeal. This was a, a seditious show designed to incite all of the others to violence. And think about this. Here you have the man who is to be the representative of all of Israel, the only one allowed to enter into the veil to make atonement for the sins of the people to the Holy One of Israel. The only one allowed to come into the very Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. And now he's tearing his robes in contempt of the very one he claims to serve. Folks, this is absolutely the epitome of religious hypocrisy. And all through Scripture, we read how God reserves his most stinging rebukes for those who pretend to be religious. And yet, sadly, the world and even our churches, even our pulpits are filled with such characters. What a picture of the wretchedness of hypocrisy. He goes on and he says, Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, Oh, he is deserving of death. Now, remember, a unanimous decision should have what? It should have freed him. Because that would demonstrate a failure of the attitude of mercy. But, but mercy has no place in the conspiracy to commit murder. By the way, as a footnote, there was one member of the Sanhedrin of this whole crowd that did believe in Jesus. We read about him in Luke 23, beginning in verse 50. It tells us that he was a good and a righteous man. It says that he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews. A man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And of course, this was Joseph of Arimathea who would later on that afternoon ask for the body of Jesus. He would be the man that would prepare it for burial and lay it in a tomb that he had prepared for his own family. But by now, Joseph of Arimathea had undoubtedly left the scene of this mock trial. He saw through the ruse. He wanted to be no part of such wicked subterfuge. And so he has gone now, no doubt grieving over the conspiracy, and yet, in fear, he has fled, even like the disciples. He's kept silent. 
Yeah, what a joy to know that later on, even that day, he would make his love for Christ known publicly by asking for his body. By the way, isn't that a, a beautiful picture of the remnant? Even though the vast majority of people will hate Christ, will see the evidence of who he really is, and yet stay drunk with their hatred of him, even though the vast majority may do that, there will always be a remnant. Well, the satanic conspiracy now moves from condemnation to violent rage and blasphemous ridicule in verses 67 and 68. They spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ! Who is the one who hit you? By the way, Luke's Gospel tells us that they even blindfolded him before they did this. Can you imagine that? They blindfolded him and then they hit him with their fists, slapped him with their open hands. They taunted him. And yet Jesus bore it all with meekness. Luke even says in Luke 22:65, they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Again, what a picture of the depths of human depravity. And this brings us to our final consideration this morning, and that is the correlate, where we see the undeniable parallels of what happened in this sham trial that actually happens in the hearts of men every single day. Indeed, I believe this trial of Jesus was a microcosm of man's mockery of Christ. Dear friends, I cannot fathom a more graphic depiction of man's enmity with God than that of religious elitists spitting in his face. Such indignation is beyond blasphemy. Yet the same contempt can be seen every day in the lives of those who refuse to consider the evidence of the deity of Christ. Those who refuse to acknowledge the holiness of God. Those who refuse to acknowledge the infallibility and inspiration of His Word. Those who refuse to examine their hearts and confess what we all know to be true. That God exists, that He is holy, and that we are not, and that we can never be reconciled and be able to stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ. People who refuse to acknowledge that indeed they have rebelled against Him and they stand guilty in His court of justice. People who refuse to consider the glorious gospel of Christ and confess their sin and plead for undeserved mercy and be saved. Well, here the Lord of glory stands in utter humiliation, and he silently endures the shame. And he does so without retaliation. He bears all of this brutality in meekness. In fact, in 1 Peter 2, and verse 23, obviously Peter was seeing so much of this. And there he said, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And again, here we have wicked men abusing the Lord Jesus Christ, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And they were nothing more than representatives of countless millions 
who have done the same thing before and since to this very day. I found Spurgeon's thought to be most poignant in this regard. Here's what he said, and I quote, I think of the tender omnipotence of his love. How could he bear this spitting when, with one glance of his eye, had he been but angry, the flame might have slain them and withered them all up? Yet he stood still even when they did spit in his face. And they were not the only ones who thus insulted him. For afterwards, when he was taken by the soldiers into Pilate's hall, they also spat upon him in cruel contempt and scorn. See, he goes on to say, how the patient Jesus stands, insulted in his lowest case. Sinners have bound the almighty hands and spit in their creator's face. Well, I ask you this morning in closing, what about you? Have you spit in the Savior's face? Well, people will be quick to say, well, of course not. But dear friends, I would submit to you that you have spat in his face. If indeed you believe that somehow your righteousness is greater than Christ's. If you believe that somehow you are good enough on your own to enter into the presence of a holy God. That somehow you do not need to be justified by faith alone. In Christ alone, if you believe that somehow you can save yourself, you have spat in the Savior's face. You spit in His face if you have never confessed Him as Lord. You spit in His face if you believe that somehow the gospel of grace is anything other than the most precious, precious possession of your life. You spit in His face if there is anything in life more important than worshiping and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. You spit in His face if you have no longing to hear His voice through His Word. You, you spit in His face if you have no secret devotion to Him in prayer. If you have no passion to glorify Him with every thought and every action in your life. You spit in His face if you have no longing to see Him face to face. Dear friends, if these are the marks of your life, you are no different than those evil, self-righteous, religious elitists who spat in his face in those early morning hours. And how I plead with you by the grace of God and by the power of his Holy Spirit that you will weigh the, 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 the evidence of the glory and the majesty of Christ. Lest someday you see Him as He truly is. Not as your Savior, but as your judge. Unless you repent and place your faith in Christ. Lest you see Him returning in inconceivable wrath and power and great glory. He will not come again as the meek and lowly Savior. He will come the next time as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. In fact... The Apocalypsis of Jesu Christu, the revealing of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19.11, describes the face of the one who endured such blasphemies. Frankly, the one, if you reject, will be the very face that you will hide from 
and cry for the mountains and the rocks to fall upon you to keep you from being seen by Him. And here's what we read in Revelation 19.11. This is the reality of who Jesus is when He comes again. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Dear friends, I pray this morning that we will all ponder the truths of Christ and His Gospel. And if you see them as false, then I would encourage you to eat, drink, and be merry. You might as well enjoy this life. Because when you die, you will see the face of the one that will be your judge. And then you will experience the horror of your rebellion when you see the face of the one you have spurned. But I plead with you, by God's grace, that you will see the light of of the truth, the truth of who Christ is, and that you will be saved. And that someday you will behold the face of the One who endured the very torments of hell so that you and I could enjoy the glories of heaven. May God be merciful to us all. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate the glories of Your Word and the horrors of the blasphemies that were perpetrated upon the sinless Lamb of God, we we are overwhelmed once again with Your grace for us. And we praise You for Your mercy in our lives. We rejoice in the salvation that is ours that has been given to us so rich and so free. We praise You, Lord Jesus, for lavishing Your affections upon us. And I pray this morning for those who continue to spit in Your face, Lord, how I pray that You will convict them with the truth. It is so overwhelming. But we know that they will never be able to see it apart from the regenerating power, the quickening power of the Spirit of God. And so we pray, Lord, that You will be pleased to open their eyes and that today they will experience the miracle of the new birth. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.